Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi there, my name is Zach Twomley. You're listening to When Diplomacy Fails. You're a history friend. I'm a history podcaster, and you've come to the right place if you're looking for the latest episode of the Versailles Anniversary Project. But If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Before we properly get into that, I have to remind you that this is a listener-supported podcast. And you should, of course, know that in just a few short days... The Paris Peace Conference 100 years ago was opening, which means that, in just a few short days, the delegation game is beginning. 
The delegation game, what's that? said nobody ever. Well, the delegation game is the best way for you to engage with this podcast by creating an avatar or character that you may have in your mind, or if you want to impersonate someone from history, and then you send your profile of that person to me, and then I plug that guy into this interactive 24-week-long game that we have going. It involves dice rolls, a lot of scheming and plotting and voting, and I'm really excited to get into it. I've talked more than enough about the delegation game already, and if you have any questions, make sure to listen to that delegation game episode first, which came out like a few episodes ago. Literally just look for it, and you'll find it. Although, if you don't really want to listen to things, and you, like George Clemenceau, just want to cut to the chase, then email me, wdfpodcast at hotmail.com, and I'd be happy to answer your questions. Those delegates that have still yet to send me your details, make sure you do that, because the sooner you do that, the happier and less stressed I will be. And if you don't let me know who you're going to play, how will I know who you want to be when we open in just a few days' time? Other than that, guys, a huge thanks to you all for making this podcast such a joy to produce. And I should warn you, Things are about to get very intense over the next few weeks. You will really start to see all the work I've been putting in. I know that it seems like I haven't been putting out that much because we had a Christmas break and everything, and legitimately 100 years ago there wasn't that much going on either, but it gave us a chance to look at profiles and stuff. Well, now we're ready to really get into it. And if you were curious about what it is I do in my spare time, let's just say you're about to find out, because, oh boy, we got an awful lot of content on the way. It is, of course, all free, which is why I ask you guys, if you're interested in supporting this podcast monetarily, the best way to do that is to go to patreon.com. If, on the other hand, like me, you cleave to every single last cent you have, I completely understand. All you have to do to support this podcast is to tell someone. That is the simplest way. But if you like pressing buttons and looking at other people, then follow us on Twitter, at WDF Podcast, find us on Facebook, the Facebook page, or join the Facebook group. You know the story by now, guys. It's BeFit. The best ways you can get in contact with, inquire, or support this podcast. It's all there, and you know it well enough by now. So I'm not going to bore you anymore. I'm just going to say thanks for being so great and downloading and streaming or listening or whatever you're doing. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Well, he 
You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 23. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 23 of the Versailles Anniversary Project. Last time we marked the 12th of January 1919, and the occasion of the first gathering of the Allied leaders by investigating that surprisingly eventful day and the detail it deserved. The Paris Peace Conference had not opened by the time everyone sat down on the 12th of January, 100 years ago. Yet, as we've learned, this did not stop all involved from talking, arguing and compromising. If they could not yet act as a conference, then they would act in the capacity of the Supreme War Council. This would mean that those assembled would be unable to pass binding legislation or cement international treaties. They would, however, be able to do the preparatory legwork and organise a kind of schedule, not to mention unearth some of the more problematic questions which the end of the Great War had presented. This approach to getting things done regardless of what they called their meetings, and trust me they had a lot of names for all these gatherings they had, as we will see later on and as we've already seen more than enough of now, all involved were very serious about making good progress and quickly. For the next week indeed, and right up to the official opening of the Paris Peace Conference, when this Allied gathering would acquire more weight and legitimacy, Woodrow Wilson, David Lloyd George, George Clemenceau, Vittorio Orlando, and of course those tasked with recording the minutes of all those scattered meetings, had never been so busy, seemed, in their lives. As the old cliché went, though, the big four were, at this point, only just getting started. Let's take you all to this detailed story and this very chunky, detailed episode, beginning from the evening of the 12th of January, 1919. It had been a stormy first day of meetings. The long list of issues and details that had been unwrapped were both troubling and exhilarating for those that imagined that, here in this French capital, a new and better world would be made. Evidently, though, this new world could only be made by traversing the jealousies and anxieties of the old. Room for disagreement was expansive. The topic of delegates and how much each should have took much of the time, and was revisited after everyone had had a chance to cool down, and David Lloyd George talked to his technical advisers, not to mention the Dominions. The Dominions of the British Empire were unhappy with the idea that their small size and large sacrifices were to be somehow balanced, and that they would receive such scant representation when it mattered most. Tempers flared, feelings were hurt, and the issue would not be resolved until the second day of meetings which the Supreme War Council held. Yet, a knock-on effect of talking about the number of delegates of the Dominions led to similar discussions about other smaller countries. The straightforward option, of course, was to ignore them. The likes of Cuba or Honduras were surely not in a position to make much waves. Yet the idea of principle moved disagreement on this issue. If these small states had their voices ignored, then what was to stop this process extending further up the chain? 
how small did a country have to be before it was considered safe to ignore it. Others still claimed that this was ridiculous. Issues like these did not have to be resolved yet anyway. We're just meeting for the first time. It's a lovely afternoon. It's a weighted moment the world is watching. Leave it to the technical advisors or the lowly officials or the typists or the printers who will be responsible for breaking the bad news quietly uh, behind closed doors, of course. By now, it was late in the day, though. It was past 6pm on the 12th of January, 1919, a day which had already hosted three separate meetings. Tempers were fraying, and the men were discovering firsthand how potentially exhausting the conference could be. Before the different groups broke into open squabbling, French Premier Georges Clemenceau rose to make an impassioned speech, which the minutes of these meetings conveniently detail for us in full. Clemenceau said, Am I to understand from the statement of President Wilson that there can be no question, however important it may be for France, England, Italy or America, upon which the representative of Honduras or of Cuba shall not be called upon to express his opinion? I have hitherto always been of the opinion that it was agreed that the five great powers should reach their decisions upon important questions before entering the halls of the Congress to negotiate peace. If a new war should take place, Germany would not throw all of her forces upon Cuba or upon Honduras, but upon France. It will always be upon France. I request, then, that we stand by the proposals which we have made, proposals to the effect that meetings held in which the representatives of the five countries mentioned shall participate, to reach decisions upon the important questions, and that the study of secondary questions be turned over to the commissions and the committees before the reunion of the conference. We are not convened to reach a decision upon this subject this evening. Unquestionably, the smaller powers are quite as much interested in the conclusion of a peace as are the great powers. The great powers have a great past behind them. Upon them devolves the responsibility for the conclusion of peace and in the negotiations their preponderating roles shall be recognised. Unquestionably, the smaller powers have the same moral rights as have the great powers, but it is impossible to permit the small powers to render decisions on questions which do not directly concern them in any way. We are ready to do everything that is possible to defend their rights and interests, but it is not always possible to say that all the powers are upon the same footing when they approach the settlement of the controversies raised by the war. The account that has to be settled is not one alone of money. There is an account for the bloodshed that has to be settled also. The blood which France has shed gives to France an indisputable right to raise her voice and insist upon her point of view in these questions which are exclusively her concern. If this way of looking at the matter is not accepted by all, I could not retain the honour of representing France in the peace conference. The question is so important that I propose we do adjourn until its solution tomorrow to reflect upon the suggestions which have just been made by President Wilson and upon the remarks which I have just formulated. Wow, well, that was intense. You'll notice here that Clemenceau was invoking the suffering and losses of France. It was not for the last time that he would do this. In this case, it did prove very effective. In time, it would lose its appeal because he did it so much. But Clemenceau's point rings true. France had lost more men and more capital than any of the other allies, and this underlined the French Premier's position. Statistics alone told a traumatic story which anecdotes only added additional weight to. Wilson and Lloyd George, in their way, were generous towards the French position, at least for now. I mean, there was no point in making enemies at this early stage of the conference. 
The next afternoon, on the 13th of January, at 2.30pm, the Supreme War Council met again at French Foreign Minister's Stephen Pichon's room, with the topic of renewing the armistice at the top of the agenda. Until this was done, thanks to the terms of the original armistice that was signed on the 11th of November, the war would technically be in danger of resuming, because it had to be renewed every single month. This undermined the whole purpose of an Allied conference. Interestingly though, it wasn't a mere renewal, but a slight modification that the French were after. Marshal Ferdinand Foch in particular was of the impression that Germany's gold reserves were in danger, and that her means of producing banknotes had to be protected by the Allied governments if necessary. Germany could well be grateful for Allied help in this regard, it was said, to prevent their gold and printers from falling into the hands of the Spartacists, who were by this point effectively eliminated as a threat, but let's not let the details cloud the story. That there was a distinct lack of information regarding the German situation should not surprise us too much, especially considering how insular the Paris gatherings had the potential to be. Since this Supreme War Council was not equipped to formulate official treaties, there was little that could be done about Germany's Spartacist problem in any case. However, as the Supreme War Council had written up the original armistice document, they also had the power to modify it. Eventually, the clause which was gone with read thus, Germany must take, as soon as possible, all measures to ensure the safety of the gold deposits in the Reichsbank, and of the machinery required for the issue of banknotes. Marshal Foch is therefore authorised to take the necessary measures to give effect to the recommendation of the experts, either by the insertion of a clause in the armistice or otherwise. The Allied leaders were of course not protecting German money-making capabilities out of the kindness of their hearts. A broke and anarchic Germany would be unable to pay its share of the butcher's bill of the reparations. Yet there was the danger that this starving iteration of Germany might use its gold and banknotes reserves for another more understandable purpose, the purchasing of foodstuffs to feed its starving population. Clemenceau genuinely feared the implications of American grains arriving and the Germans eagerly paying with their gold. This would rob the French of the chance, perhaps the only chance they had, to recoup some of the losses and rebuild their tattered industry, which the Germans had deliberately destroyed by gaining back both the German gold and leveraging the food issue over the German government at the same time. The next item of the agenda served almost as a nod to Clemenceau's concerns. What if the Germans pay for their food by trading in their submarines? The more obvious solution of ending the blockade did not come up for discussion, largely because the threat posed by German submarines was felt to be very real indeed, even at this stage. Not just her subs, but Germany's merchant shipping would be taken as well. This wasn't necessarily done as punishment, but also because the Allies imagined that these vessels would come in handy to deliver the vital foodstuffs into the continent as quickly as possible. If the food arrived and Germany had all her ships, then she would simply retain possession of these ships for her own usage, and the further flung European nations would starve. The problem of food shortages hounded the Allies, and had been felt to be so acute that the Supreme Council of Supply and Relief had been established on the 12th of December 1918 to guard against further famines and coordinate the delivery of desperately needed food. An important character you may have heard of who was already looming into view at this point, or who had long loomed into view at this point, depending on who you talk to, 
was a 43-year-old Quaker by the name of Herbert Hoover, who held the position as head of the United States Food Administration, that body charged with coordinating the delivery and sale of American foodstuffs to soldiers and citizens alike during the war. He acquired this job following his immensely impressive showing as chairman of the Relief Commission for Belgium, a body tasked with arranging the delivery of foodstuffs to occupied Belgium and ensuring that the German soldiers did not make off with those goods. Operating from London, working 14-hour days, securing the safe passages of hundreds of thousands of Americans and millions of tons of food, Hoover became something of a national hero between 1914-16. Thanks to his very public role, the Relief Commission for Belgium floated on a budget of $11 million by 1916, supported by private and corporate donors, animated by the Belgian plight, and inspired by Hoover's activism. Considering his great work in the field, it only made sense to have Hoover head America's food administration and guarantee good and timely delivery of food for American soldiers once America entered the war. After the war, the United States Food Administration changed its name to the American Relief Association, and its mission was also changed to feeding any Europeans it could find. Hoover, predictably enough, spearheaded the move into a shattered continent. Nor did he cease providing food to enemy ideologies or countries. Germans and Bolshevik Russians were not off the radar. 20 million people are starving, Hoover exclaimed in 1919. Whatever their policies, they shall be fed. Hoover endured criticism from his political rivals for this, who wondered whether Hoover's work to bring food to the Russians signalled sympathy with Bolshevism. Hoover parried these ideas, though, and he centred his focus upon the issue of preventing people from dying by starvation, a fairly reasonable and noble aim, I'm sure you'll agree. This noble enterprise continued even while government funding dried up. Hoover transformed the American Relief Association into a private company, as its earlier Belgian equivalent had been, and he reconnected with his old contacts to maintain high levels of funding for its purposes even after the government stopped throwing money at it. It cannot be known exactly how much of an impact Hoover made, but historians can attest to the fact that this organisation of his saved millions, perhaps tens of millions of lives. So yeah, he wasn't just a president, he also did some pretty darn good things too. There were other reasons for saving people from gnawing hunger, as the minutes of the Supreme War Council on the 13th of January make clear though. Desperate and hungry people turn to desperate, drastic, extreme ideologies in order to get their families fed and, well, avoid death. To preempt this threat, Woodrow Wilson and others believed it was imperative that the American Relief Association pool its resources and experience, and thus the aforementioned Supreme Council of Supply and Relief was born. Independent of the American Relief Association, it nonetheless drew heavily from its legacy and the lessons learned by Hoover over the previous four years. Not everyone was happy to see this young American gain more influence, though. Winston Churchill, in particular, loathed Herbert Hoover, and the feeling was mutual. However, the grave circumstances necessitated that all cooperate to ease the burden of a lack of food. Germany needed 200,000 tonnes of wheat and 700,000 tonnes of meat per month for its population to stay afloat, and they weren't even the worst case. Hospitals in the former Habsburg Empire had run out of virtually all supplies, and in the emerging Czechoslovak state, 
A lack of infant formula meant that more babies were dying than surviving. People ate what they could find in these circumstances, from wood shavings and tree bark to sand and entire colonies of bees. Possessing none of the experience which those of the UN Relief Association had after 1945, the nations tasked with easing the towering burden did their best, but the aftershocks of the Great War and its impact on the human spirit and health continued to rampage throughout the continent, as the sinister forces of disease and Bolshevism lurked in the background. So long as hunger continued to gnaw, the foundations of Garunt would continue to crumble. Therefore, food should be supplied immediately, not only to our friends, but also to those parts of the world where it was to our interest to maintain a stable government. This was Woodrow Wilson's central concern, as he expressed it here. Food was a useful weapon for the sake of leverage, and in the right circumstances, it could be used to gain concessions from the enemy. As was becoming apparent, though, one could only go so far with this pressure campaign, in a situation where the Germans and the Allies couldn't afford to pay, and disaster, on a terrifying scale, appeared to stalk the wintry cities of the continent, Herbert Hoover's initiative with the American Relief Association, and his cooperation with the Supreme Council for Support and Relief, was essential. A failure to provide the food would force the hands of the starving soldiers, the starving millions of citizens as well, who would turn to fringe ideologies out of sheer desperation, so the thinking went. As was becoming customary, the meeting then had a short recess before resuming at 4pm, still at the French Foreign Office, but this time on the 13th of January, joined by the Japanese, who remained largely silent throughout the proceedings, a common theme really of the Paris Peace Conference. The Japanese mostly only spoke when they were spoken to, and the only times that they really piped up was when people were talking about Asia. Lloyd George opened the meeting with a familiar bone of contention for those involved, the question of representation of the Dominions, and the delegates they would be entitled to bring. Eventually it was decided that all the Dominions, including India, would field two delegates apiece, whereas New Zealand would only have one. Brazilian, Costa Rican and Russian representation were all discussed, with some agreements made. Brazil would get three delegates, for instance, and the question of what to do about Russia would be delayed until the actual policy of the Paris Peace Conference towards that country had been decided. But, by and large, kicking the can down the road was the order of the day. The men present at this afternoon meeting on the 13th of January 1919 will recall had no power here to actually decide anything. Their task was simply to prepare the way for a fluid and straightforward conference once it opened within the week. The best way to do this was by preempting potential disagreements now and sorting out procedure and protocols. It should be added, though, that the order in which matters were to be discussed had still not been sorted out, let alone the question of how long these Allied leaders intended to meet together before a final peace congress took over. Clemenceau was anxious to get on with things, pointing out that nothing had been done for two months, and public opinion would be greatly disappointed if all of them continued to dally and procrastinate. What was needed, declared the French Premier, was a declaration of the ordering of the issues to be discussed, because this would frame the Supreme War Council's discussions and facilitate the transition to the final conference much faster. The League of Nations, reparations, new states, boundaries and colonies 
was the list which Woodrow Wilson then proposed, to be presented in this order to the other delegations and deliberated on in time. Clemenceau agreed with this ordering and he requested that all of them start as soon as possible with this next phase, but the Italians demurred, since Premier Orlando had recently travelled home to Italy and he wouldn't be back until Friday. Very well, it was agreed, all would gather together for the opening day of the conference in the Quai d'Orsay at 2.30pm on Saturday the 18th of January. President Poincaré would open that meeting with a speech, but in the meantime the minor delegations would discuss these aforementioned issues amongst themselves. In addition, discussions about procedure would resume in two days on the 15th of January, so that this issue did not bog everyone down any further for the moment. Everyone seemed content to have the next day off, that is the 14th of January, with the understanding that the 15th of January would be another intense slog. Typically though it was impossible to have a complete day off. The British and Americans still met together in Woodrow Wilson's lodgings. Harold Nicholson, remember our man in the foreign office, believed that the British and Americans planned to discuss the secret treaty of London which had brought Italy into the war in 1915. Nicholson did not expect Woodrow Wilson to approve of it, which would certainly complicate matters. Nicholson and some of his peers went to where they believed the meeting was being held, only to be told to wait outside for two hours. Nicholson flicked through the Irish Times, an apparent picture of serenity, while he recorded the strange sights occurring in Wilson's mansion. At about 4.45pm, the room which Nicholson and company were waiting outside was opened, and out came Lloyd George, Woodrow Wilson, Lord Balfour and Bonner Law. Oh, Balfour exclaimed, dear me, have you been waiting all this time, Nicholson? I never realised. There were several things I wanted to ask you. For instance, at this moment, Balfour turned to introduce Woodrow Wilson to Harold Nicholson. Mr. President, this is a young friend of mine who could have told us all we wanted. Now, let me see, what was it that we wanted? Oh yes, Fiume. Nicholson may well have shuddered. Fiume was a bone of contention for the Italians, Austrians and Yugoslavs, but Wilson interrupted him, saying, No, not Fiume, we had all that. What we wanted was the exact figure of the Germans, which would be annexed by Italy, if they got this Brenner frontier. Now, can you tell us all that? The Brenner frontier, again, was a bone of contention for the Italians, and existed within the equally contentious Tyrol region. Italy had been promised this region as per the terms of the 1915 Treaty of London, which brought her into the war. Wilson was evidently assessing how feasible or fair Italy's claims and expectations were. Harold Nicholson weighed in. I have not the exact figures, Mr. President. It should be about 240,000. Or was it not 250,000? Wilson replied. Well, Mr. President, Nicholson said, I was going to say 245,000. Very well, Wilson replied. A matter of thousands, anyway. Certainly, Nicholson retorted. And anti-Italian thousands. You mean to say, Wilson said back, that they are pro-German, pro-Austrian? If you're wondering why we're getting into this little conversation, I just thought it sheds some light on the occasional ridiculousness of the Paris Peace Conference, so we're going to keep on looking at it. Wilson decided that he was not going to talk about Fiume after all, again asking after the figures of those who would be displaced. 
Oh yes, do you mean with or without the suburbs? Nicholson asked. Yes, Wilson said. There is a suburb called Eshak or something. Susak, Nicholson corrected him, before producing the figures he had already calculated earlier from his pouch. Wilson seemed impressed by the thoroughness of Nicholson's calculations. So I thought, the president mused, and the line between Fiume and Eshak, that is, Susak, which Nicholson had corrected him on earlier, is a small one. One cannot possibly separate the two, Nicholson confirmed. So I gather, Wilson replied, but the Italians tell me that if one tries to pass from Fiume to Eshak, again, the president meant Susak, one is certain to be murdered. Oh, Nicholson replied, perhaps taken aback. Aha, Wilson exclaimed. I guess he was talking through his hat. Well, good night to you, gentlemen, the president added before heading to his private rooms. This, Harold Nicholson recalled with plain sarcasm, is called giving expert advice. So Balfour's reasons for taking so long in the meeting and leaving Nicholson outside were even less reassuring. I cannot apologise enough for keeping you so long, Balfour said. To tell you the truth, the last half hour we've only been discussing whether Napoleon and Frederick the Great could be called disinterested patriots. And, Nicholson asked, what was the conclusion? Oh, Balfour said, I forgot the conclusion. The entire encounter, from being made to wait outside, to enduring Wilson's stumbling over names and figures, to not knowing quite why he had bothered to come to the President's residence in the first place, all of these were anecdotes which Nicholson chose to take note of in his diary, to illustrate firsthand how occasionally bizarre the whole procedure could seem. But that was the 14th of January. Those assembled on the morning of the 15th of January began by binning one of Wilson's 14 points with the full assent of the President. Open covenants, openly arrived at, had long been a sticky issue. What exactly did it mean? Did it mean that a permanent press corps would report on absolutely everything that was agreed, or was a more conservative outcome likely instead? Depending on whom you asked, a chasm of difference in opinion existed. These figures gathered at the Quai d'Orsay seemed fairly united, though, There was to be no freedom of access. The press would publish what a committee specially selected to comb through the day's deliberations allowed them to publish. Everything else would remain secret for national security reasons and for the sake of Allied unity. It was too risky for the French press in particular to discuss questions which might divide the Allies and colour the opinion of the proceedings. With this in mind, point number two of the 14 points had been effectively removed. Covenants were hardly being openly arrived at if information was under such an extensive lock and key, regardless of whether this was necessary or not, and as it turned out, these measures had little effect. The Supreme Council, all the different councils of the different figures, were notoriously leaky as far as secret information getting out was concerned. The rest of the meeting was taken up with further debate on the question of delegates, that old chestnut again, before switching to another surprisingly sensitive topic, and one which took an awful long time to sort out, the official language of the conference treaties. While it was declared that all had a right to speak their own language, French was declared to be the official language, as in official copies of each document would be made in French. 
Lloyd George opposed this, though, on the basis that more English speakers resided at Paris than French-speaking ones. In response, the Italians asked why Italian should not be added to the list of official languages. The Italian and French delegations were, after all, similar in size, and if Italian was ignored, then it would appear that Rome was being snubbed. Wilson responded that English was the language of business within Asia, a fact which Lloyd George questioned, interestingly enough, even though Wilson was helping him make a point. When the Italians asked whether anyone would object to Italian versions of each document being printed, Lloyd George asked whether they should do the same for the Japanese, since Japanese citizens outnumbered Italians in the world two to one, after all. Clemenceau then weighed in, exclaiming his support for English and Italian, but reasoning that due to its precision and traditional position, French should remain the final language of reference in the event they did a dispute on the other languages arose. Lloyd George actually noted that he would need some time to reflect on this issue, and the morning meeting of the 15th of January was adjourned until the afternoon. The meeting resumed at 2.30pm, with Wilson immediately leading the charge against French, serving as the official language of the conference. The favouring of French had been a European tradition, the President said, but now the conference concerned the entire world, and the United States was a new great power which spoke English as its first language. This could not be ignored as a factor. For practical purposes, Wilson declared, he felt compelled to argue that English and French be accepted as the two official languages, whose translations carried equal weight. The journey towards an acceptance of this idea was long and dull, so we're not going to get into it, but again, it tells a certain story familiar to us by now, that of differences of opinion existing in virtually all regions of the discussions. One solution was proposed, why did there have to be any definitive official versions at all? Why not have the treaties carry equal weight in whatever language they were written in? No, this wouldn't do, it was argued, because it would cause too many problems. A pattern was starting to emerge in these minutes, whenever anyone wanted to make any kind of point or disagree with their counterpart, they felt the need to begin their speech with a long and winding diatribe about how much they valued their opposite and the efforts which had been made during the war. On one occasion, Clemenceau actually spent ten minutes building up to his point with this background fluffing, before expressing in a single sentence the crux of his position, saying, Nevertheless, there must at all times be one final text with which to appeal. I therefore hold to my position, established earlier in the morning. This style of argument obviously wasted a lot of time, and it is likely that going into the meetings on the 15th of January, nobody expected to spend much time at all talking about it. Stephen Pichon, the French foreign minister, expressed his belief that this was the first time French had been so challenged as the language of diplomacy throughout the world before adding that even Bismarck, who was no friend of France, had raised no objections to the use of French in the 1878 Treaty of Berlin. Clemenceau declared himself unable to move on this point, and he insisted again that it was essential to have a single text to refer to for the sake of contentious agreements or disagreements or issues, and that he couldn't accept English supplanting French in this regard, notwithstanding English's rise in importance across the world. To avoid another recess, the issue was postponed until a later date, with the understanding that it would be resolved before the conference actually opened on the 18th of January. Mercifully leaving aside the language issue for the moment, everyone calmed down a bit and looked at another important question, 
that being exactly who would be allowed attend the opening of the conference on Saturday. French Foreign Minister Pichon argued that all who had been in some way hostile towards Germany should be allowed to be there, and the Allies agreed to this. In time, the question of authority to speak or act on decisions would be judged by one's participation in the war, but for now, there was no need to exclude any but those who had been unfriendly neutrals. Lloyd George added that to avoid the perception among the press that the Allies disagreed on what to do about Russia, the delegations should formulate memos on the situation in Russia as they understood it. These would then be compiled and collated, and a decision on policy towards that state would be made. It was agreed that this would be done as quickly as possible, but Pichon then spoke up with the concern that an awful lot of issues were being kicked down the road to the delegates. If matters continued in this manner, then the opening days of the conference would be bogged down by questions which the powers here had simply put on the back burner. It was therefore imperative that they got as many contentious decisions out of the way as possible. Lloyd George agreed, and it was decided that greater efforts would be made the following morning, Thursday the 16th of January at 10.30am. So far, not much of anything had been decided by those assembled, save for the day when the conference would actually open and whom would be invited. Aside from that, disagreement appeared to lurk around every corner, and the meeting opened by addressing one such disagreement, the question of press censorship. In France, censorship was widespread, while in the United States it was being reduced, and the same was true in Britain. The creation of a press committee, which would host one delegate from each great power, who would be charged with deciding what was or wasn't released to the press, had the potential to solve this issue. But Lloyd George made it clear that the central problem of journalists supporting the opposition and attempting to undermine the sitting delegates was a fact of life. They could, the Prime Minister said, issue a statement informing the press organisations of the world that disagreement and friction was a natural part of the process of organising such a substantial conference that they were now involved in. Clemenceau was nervous about this, though, because he didn't want to broadcast the Allied differences of opinion to the Germans. Eventually he did come around, though, with the mood of goodwill imprinted on the announcement, the press would be made to appear foolish for making mountains out of molehills rather than the conference members actually reacting to everything they did and the negotiations would be allowed to continue without the pressure of rumour and criticism from unwelcome corners. This very optimistic view of how the press would be treated didn't last particularly long. Russia was then considered, and Lloyd George opened by clarifying that he had never expressed support for recognition of the Bolshevik government, but he did want his colleagues and counterparts at Paris to come to terms with the situation in Russia. The situation was, quite frankly, dire. The predictions of the Allies had not panned out. The Bolsheviks were stronger than ever. Ukraine appeared to have fallen to a similar Bolshevik government, and there appeared to be no way to defeat the Bolshevik regime without a significant investment of men and material which no one wished to invest. If they would not send the one million soldiers necessary to put down the revolution, and if they would not blockade and starve the population into oblivion, then what option was left? The only true option, Lloyd George said, was to negotiate a truce between the warring elements of Russia and to invite delegates from each of the factions in Russia to take part in discussions. Any threat that this would spread Bolshevism to Paris or London was exaggerated, Lloyd George said, because the delegates could be controlled and sent back to Russia if they misbehaved. Wilson was surprisingly positive and receptive towards Lloyd George's presentation of the Russian situation. 
The president even went as far as elaborating on his understanding of what made Bolshevism so popular, saying that there was throughout the world a feeling of revolt against the large vested interests which influenced the world both in the economic and in the political sphere. British and American troops, Wilson said, were unwilling to fight in Russia because they feared their efforts might lead to the restoration of the old order, which was even more disastrous than the present one. Wilson said that the sympathies of American audiences he had spoken to were with the Russian people, and against any notion of a restoration of some kind of czarist regime. We should be fighting against the current of the times, Wilson declared, if we tried to prevent Russia from finding her own path in freedom. Wilson then added with some perception that much of the popularity that the Bolsheviks enjoyed came from their presentation of the Western powers as enemies of their revolution. If a truce was arranged and these powers withdrawn, then this power point would vanish. So long as the Bolsheviks didn't invade their neighbours in Poland or the Baltic, then there seemed little real harm in inviting the different elements of the fragmented country to Paris to take part, though the contributions of the Russian delegates would not hold as much weight as their counterparts, and the Russians would certainly not sit side by side with the Allies. Interestingly, the view of this president was at odds with what Edward House, absent from these meetings due to illness, had been working towards. House had written on the 6th of January, ten days before Wilson's pronouncements here had been made, that I am trying, and have partially succeeded, to frighten not only the president, but also the English, French and Italians regarding who might be termed the Russian peril. Personally, I really do believe there is as much danger as I make it to them. If I had the same imperialistic views that some of these people have, who are at the head of their governments, I would not confess that military intervention was an impossibility, because I believe that it could be successfully accomplished if gone about properly. A voluntary and mercenary army of very small proportions, equipped with artillery and tanks, would, in my opinion, do the work and do it well. That same day, that is the 16th of January, 1918, 1919, Harold Nicholson met with Edward Benesch over lunch and listened to what the Czech foreign minister had to say. Nicholson came away impressed. Altogether an intelligent, young, plausible little man with broad views, Nicholson said. He did remark on the Czech plans to stabilise Central Europe by relying fundamentally on the economic self-interests of the different new powers, like Poland, Hungary and Austria. Since it was in the interests of these states to rebuild their economies, it was highly improbable that conflict would follow over border disputes. This at least was the Czech viewpoint. Nicholson then poured some venom on the Supreme War Council's decision, which he had evidently been made aware of, to grant Brazil three delegates, while Portugal only got one. This will create bad blood, Nicholson noted with concern. Following the Russian discussion, it seemed like everyone was ready to break for the day. It was understood that the next day, the 17th of January, the French and Danish ambassadors to Russia would join the delegates to provide some context to the overall Russian picture. The final day, the preliminaries of the Paris Peace Conference opened in the morning of the 17th of January in the Quai d'Orsay once again. But its discussions are not really worth getting into, since they simply talked through issues which had been delayed before, like how much information the press should get, without making much of a decision. One thing which was agreed upon was that an agenda would be needed for the first day that the conference opened, 
for the sake of focusing the discussion and keeping everyone on track, as well as anticipating potential grounds for conflict. Opening again in the afternoon of the 17th of January, the Supreme War Council discovered that Belgium had lodged a formal protest among the powers after having learned that she was only to be permitted to have one delegate, where she had originally wanted three to represent her president's interests and two to represent each of the political parties. Lloyd George, understandably, lost his temper at this point, asking aloud whether the conference was ever going to move on from the delegates' question and whether it was going to continue to reverse its decisions. If this was the final adjustment, then Lloyd George declared he would accept it, but he warned that other powers would be miffed that their representations had not also been increased. As far as the agenda for the next eventful day of the 18th of January was concerned, it shouldn't surprise us to learn that further disagreement reigned. It was startling to denote that on virtually every question, even down to the problem of sifting through all the opinions of the delegations, the great powers possessed different opinions, and what was more, they seemed to be making it up on the fly. It apparently hadn't occurred to Woodrow Wilson, George Clemenceau or David Lloyd George that they would need some mechanism for working through the different delegations' opinions on the different issues, or that this would take up time. Had these figures never thought to communicate via telegram or otherwise before arriving in Paris to save time? At least if the procedure was sorted out, and only the disagreement over the issues under discussion remained, then at least a framework for addressing the different topics would exist. Yet, as we can discern from these minutes, the Allies hadn't even developed any kind of framework before arriving in Paris, and the day before the Paris Peace Conference was due to open, they found themselves disagreeing on how to sort through the opinions of the different delegations that they had invited. It didn't exactly bode well for what was to come. On the first day of the conference, Lloyd George believed that a list of topics should be presented to the delegations, and the delegations should then indicate which topics interested them. These delegations could then offer their two cents upon these issues, while ignoring the others as they wished. The King of Siam, for instance, was unlikely to care all that much about the shape of Poland, and this would reduce the workload and paperwork of the delegations, since it would remove those who couldn't care less from the proceedings. But Clemenceau disagreed with this idea because he wanted committees created to deal with the issues, with each delegation entitled to provide someone to sit on them. Lloyd George correctly saw this idea as creating more work rather than less, and he said that these committees could easily run away from the wider peace conference. Clemenceau, Wilson, the Japanese and Italians were eventually persuaded, and it was decided that certain topics like the League of Nations and reparations should be saved for the final conference, which was still mistakenly believed to follow this first phase of talks. The list of things which the Allies got wrong was long even before the conference had technically opened. All went into it, confident that, after a few weeks or days of sorting through their main questions, the final conference would begin, and the Germans would be invited. Predictably enough, these main questions, though, they dragged on for months, and sometimes they dragged on even when specifics weren't even being discussed, to the extent that the initial supposedly preliminary conference merged into the final conference, which we now know and love. On the bright side, it was at least noted that Germany had accepted the terms of the armistice which had earlier been communicated, and that, consequently, the armistice would be renewed for another month. This would give all present at Paris some additional time and space to think, and it took a bit of pressure off, but 
It was about the only good news which could be discerned from the previous days. So having looked at these days which preceded the opening of the Paris Peace Conference, it is difficult to avoid the impression that all who gathered in this preliminary week of talks were grossly unprepared, and they never seemed to imagine that their views would conflict with those of their peers, at least to this extent. All were at least patient and cordial, and demonstrated their intentions to compromise where possible, but in terms of concrete decisions, very few were actually made. Whether it was on the question of the precedence of language, the list of items on the agenda for the first day, communication with the press, or how many freaking delegates each power would have, jeepers move on, everyone seemed to have an opinion. This, indeed, proved to be a sign of things to come. Whatever else it did, these preliminary discussions provide us with a preview of the Paris Peace Conference that followed them. These complications and problems which the members had butted into were nothing compared to what awaited once the doors of Paris were opened to the world on the 18th of January, 1919. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 